welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And this is our review of Back to the Future Part 3, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Mary Steenburgen, Thomas F. Wilson, Leah Thompson. Released in 1990 and the conclusion of the blockbuster trilogy six months after Part 2, Brian, this one hit theaters. I know I was there for sure. The whole fam went back for it. Uh, what about you? Uh, I definitely was not in the theater. I would have been uh, 12 at the time. Um, but I remember we got it on home video right away. Um, six months after the last one. That's kind of crazy. Can you imagine a film series doing that today? Like six yeah. months? they got to yeah. milk that for all it's worth now. Yeah, now they go, what, a year, two years sometimes? I think yeah. I think those Hunger Games movies did like a year between each other or something. But uh, And the Twilight movies, too. But yeah, you'd think uh, they'd, they'd milk it for more. But, I, you know, part of it was... They shot these things back to back and they had gone four years from the beginning one to the second one. So they wanted to go ahead and get it back out. And, you know, you got to think this is I mean, home video was definitely a thing at this point in time. But they released that that second one at November. So it was a Thanksgiving movie. So it got to roll right through Christmas. So right as it's coming out of the theaters, because back then, man, movies stayed in the theaters a long time. They pull it in the spring. They get it on home video right before number three comes out, which was smart. Because I remember that because we rented both of them to watch before uh-huh. we went and saw part three again, which nice. was cool. Yeah, you think that, that uh, well, today what they would do is they'd have a marathon of all three in a row. Uh, I don't know if they did that back in that time, but uh, that would make sense to uh, do like a triple feature, you know, see yeah. one and two and then get the third one, see them all in sequential order. Um, that would have been kind of cool, but either way, six months, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I do remember seeing it and it was basically, I saw it, uh, on home video. Uh, we didn't do a whole lot of movies growing up in theaters, so I didn't, I didn't have that much experience with that, but, uh, most of it was always VHS home video. We rented a ton of movies as kids. And like I said, that was one thing we did as a family was go to a movie together. My my folks loved going to the movies. They liked taking us. And we were fortunate to have theaters that you know, back in those days, it wasn't, you know, taking out a small Honda loan to go to a movie together. You could yeah. go on a Saturday matinee, you know, for 20 bucks and you know, three or four people could go. And I remember going to see somebody at this point. I was 13, 14 years old, you know, so I, I went with my family once and then I went back with some friends too, you know, from school because it was just a thing to do because it came out, like I said, right at the end of the school year and in the summer and it's before any of us were working or doing that kind of stuff. So it was definitely something to see. I remember seeing it, you know, being excited about it because I knew it was going to be a Western. They had teased that at the end of the last one. I, I don't know about you, Brian. I grew up watching Westerns, like with my dad. Like that was a big thing for us, you know, good, the bad and the ugly. Outlaw Josie Wells, all the Clint Eastwood westerns, which is apropos because that's going to be a big joke in this movie. But even stuff like Gunsmoke and The Rifleman, like I grew up watching all that stuff, Bonanza, you know, on TV. And so I was curious, like the time travel motif and the western motif, how they were going to marry those things together and wrap up this story. 
Well, they did it interestingly, that's for sure. Um, yeah, not much of a Western guy. My dad's a car chunky and an airplane guy, right? So we, there's a lot of uh, movies that involved uh, vehicles. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Heavenly Kid. Yes, That yes. was a big one in our household. Um, you know, things like that uh, were more his style of movies. So we would see things like that, family movies, of course. Um, and my mom was big into the, you know, the kid movies, the Disney movies and things like that. So a lot of that, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, their favorite shows were what? Moonlighting? <laughs> <laughs> stuff like like that so yeah you know uh, yeah. the thing about about this one man is it's it's a time when michael j fox's career is, is going to launch in a lot of different directions he's getting older he's you know really got a bona fide movie career at this point he's trying to do a lot of different stuff trying to break out at just the comedy guy you know, he's doing some darker stuff here and there and you know that's going on christopher lloyd is obviously doing everything he can with this and this isn't the end of this property i mean this is gonna be the last movie but you know they had already made video games they were going to make more video games. They were doing comics. They were going to do an animated series, which I remember watching a little of, you know, growing up. I think at that point I was kind of out of the cartoon phase, you know, but we're watching a little bit of it and it was, it was all right, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I think Lloyd was involved with that, uh, at least in the live action part, because it, it would break away from the show and have Doc do like science experiments right. with like mm -hmm. Bill Nye or something like that. And so there, there was a whole franchise and then to their credit, Zemeckis and Gale have kept this thing alive uh, and, and kept it from being remade by turning it into more video games and like a ride and a theme attraction and, and all that kind of stuff um, through the years. And with the help of Spielberg, obviously, you know, to keep the property sort of intact. But no, this was built, like we said at the beginning of the last one, they wrote this huge script, realized it was too big. And so they're going to have to split it kind of like Superman one and two were basically mm -hmm. like they wrote this huge thing. They broke it right in the middle. Uh, and uh, you know, we're going to pick up going through the old West and then have to get Marty back home at some point. That's the dilemma they had left us with. And, you know, I think both of us were kind of cool on that last one. It definitely picked up when they went back to 1955, but we really love the alternate stuff. So, I, I always remember thinking like, okay, so I got through part two. I've never really loved that movie. And it's been a while since I'd seen it, you know, same with this one. How am I going to feel about three? Cause it's been a long time since I watched three. I've seen this mm. one the least of any of them. Crazy, man. Like I told you uh, when we started this series, we watch the back to the future, uh, trilogy. Uh, my wife and I at least. Once every couple of years, at least. Um, we try to watch it every year. It's just one of those movies that we just have always liked watching, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I know you are big on the first one, rightly so, and never really as big on the second or, th or third one. So you always watch the first one, but we would always watch them one after another. And now with the kids getting a little older, uh, they're able to enjoy those as well. So that's always uh, been fun for us too. It's kind of like, um, the matrix, you know, we, uh, we used to watch that every year. We don't, as uh, we don't do it anymore. We hardly have time to watch anything anymore. Uh, but, uh, we used to always watch the matrix, all three of them, you know, never the one, yeah. the one, first one's the best one, right? Oh, Second well, one drags and the third one is okay. But we'd always watch all three of them because yeah. that's just how it is. 
Yeah, since we'll never review those real quick, that first one is brilliant. That second one is awful. It's answers to, to it's all yeah. the wrong answers to the questions. And then third one is answering questions you didn't think to ask. So yeah. it's somewhat satisfying, but it's still Well, terrible. the third one was at least entertaining. The second one was just like, what, what the heck is this? Yeah. You know, but yeah. that first one, dude, that first one is, is iconic. And never hear any complaints from me about that. Nope. But, you know, maybe we compare that at the end. We'll talk about trilogies and how they work. But, Brian, before we go any further, I think it's only fair to give folks a plot summary for what happens in part three of Back to the Future. Marty enlists the help of 1955 Doc to get the time machine up and running so he can go back home. But upon investigating what life was like in the Old West for Doc, they learn that Doc was shot to death by Buford Mad Dog Tannen. Marty and the 1955 Doc send Marty back to 1885 to rescue Doc, but things are complicated. When they save a school teacher, Clara, who was fated to die when her carriage fell off a, into a ravine. Clara and Doc start to court one another while Marty meets his relatives who immigrated from Ireland. While Marty and Doc continue to work on a way to get the time machine up to speed so they can go home, Buford further complicates things, challenging Marty to a duel, which Marty accepts after having his courage questioned. Oh, there's that chicken thing again. Doc lets it slip to Marty about the future car wreck, which changes his fortunes, and the two now uh, know they must work fast to get back to their lives in 1985. Clara spurns Doc's request to go back with them, thinking he's making up a story about being a time traveler. Marty outsmarts Buford at the duel, once again knocking him into manure. (laughs) And he and Doc plan to use the train to speak uh, trained to speed up the time machine to 88 miles per hour. Clara has a change of heart and discovers Doc was telling the truth all along. She rides after Doc and Marty, who have hijacked the train to push the time machine. Doc ends up saving Clara, who is about to fall, while Marty and the time machine speed off to 1985. Marty ends up stalled on the train track and narrowly escapes as a speeding train destroys the DeLorean. Marty discovers his timeline has returned to normal, picks up Jennifer, and uses the lessons he learned in 1885 to avoid the car crash that set his life off course. Marty and Jennifer return to the wreckage of the DeLorean when a flying, time-traveling steam engine arrives, manned by Doc, Clara, and their two boys, Jules and Vern. Doc and his family wish Marty and Jennifer well, and tell them not to worry about their futures as they still have a chance to write them while a locomotive fires up and flies off to an unknown date and time. That's a good summary, Brian, and it hits all the major points. We're going to wrap it all up. I mean, they're bringing the whole thing home here. And, you know, right off the bat, the first movie is definitely about Marty and his parents. The second movie is very much a Biff movie, as we we talked about, or at least a good chunk of it is. This movie's a Doc movie. It's yes. about Doc and rescuing Doc and Doc falling in love. How do you feel about that? Well, I have some issues with this whole thing here and the setup to this, only because um, it makes no sense. Uh, <laughs> and by that, I mean the part where they find his gravestone, right? Mm-hmm. They find the the tombstone. It says on there, Beloved Clara. Okay, Clara apparently perishes by falling off the ravine, which is named Clara or Clayton Ravine, uh, in 1985. Right. Doc saves her from that fate when Marty's with him in 1885. So did he save her 
1885 when Marty wasn't with him because they wouldn't have met otherwise because she would have fallen off the ravine. So how does she become his beloved in the first place? Yeah, this is the problem that happens in these time travel movies when you start picking at the threads of them. And it, it doesn't make any sense. And this one is going to ask a lot of us because that ending with that steam engine, we had an offline conversation about it. I'm going to ask you to recall because I've had questions about that for nay 30 years now. Like, sure. how did that occur? You had a pretty good answer. So we'll get to that when we get there. But yeah, there's a lot going on with this. And I want to say something. I said in the last movie that Gail and Zemeckis clearly wanted to kidify this a little bit. With that whole chicken thing and a lot of the other stuff that they were doing. Yeah. And in this movie, they go full Saturday morning cartoon to the point of actually referencing one of my favorite Looney Tunes side characters, Nasty Canasta, you know, who's, who's out for Daffy Duck's blood, which I, I love Daffy and I love that whole Western Daffy thing because <laughs> he's so ridiculous. But they, they, they go all the way to that. They make Buford Tan essentially that character, which they, you know, done the, the little snip of in the, in the Biff Trump Museum in the, in the second one that we saw last time. We knew that was coming, and the way Thomas F. Wilson plays that character, the way all the lessons unfold, the way all the gadgetry works, it's like Wild Wild West and Saturday morning cartoons in this. And this movie owes a lot to, not the Will Smith movie, but the old Jim West Wild Wild West movie or TV show. And to a lot of Saturday morning cartoon. Like, they go full cartoon in this one. And I kind of feel complicated about that, Brian, because that first movie... Was was a family movie, but it had a lot of layers to it without fully going that road. Um, yeah, I would agree. I would say this movie is even more of a family movie because of that whole motif. I think uh, yeah. the kids will get a lot more enjoyment out of this one than the first one uh, the, if they watched it. Because, you know, Buford Tannen is your typical uh, bad guy in a Western setting, right? He's got the muddy face all the time. He's, you know, can't speak right. And he's always pissed off. You know, he's the perfect cartoon character bad guy in a Western. Yep. Um, so I don't know. I think it works well in this one better than it did even, uh, in the first one, as far as being using that cartoon motif, because let's face it, the wild west and everything about this <laughs> feels like a, a comedy cartoon. It is. It, it is a slapstick version of the wild west. It is, I mean, they did build a back lot of, of a Western city. And it feels like it. I mean, this whole thing almost <laughs> feels like they know they're in a movie now. They're mm-hmm. referencing that when Doc and Marty in 1955 have got the white walls under the DeLorean and they're going to crank it up and he's just going to run it from one end of, to, of a drive into another. I looked at that and I was like, I don't know that that's enough room to get it's up to 88. not enough room. <laughs> I was like, that DeLorean's got a four banger in it. It's beat up too. It's been sitting in a mine shaft for 70 years. I don't think it's that, you know, it's going to get up that. And it, and it does spark bad. And it looks like it's got problems. You know, I like the, the fact that the time machine is sort of taking a beating from all of its, its uh, goings on. But the, you know, they play the joke of like, Oh, I'm going to run right into that mural of Indians doc. It's like, Oh no. When you transport back, they won't even be there. And it runs right into the herd of the natives you know, coming around, which is, it's a, it's a laugh. It's a joke, but it's a Saturday morning cartoon joke is what I'm trying to get at. 
Yeah. That first movie had humor that worked on every level. Kids could laugh at it. Adults could laugh at it because you see something that you didn't see when you were a kid in it, right? Mm. That second one just kind of got real nasty for about 40 minutes and then got kind of silly and funny and sort of self-referential. This one is just like, nope, we're just now a cartoon because yeah. we're going to blast a, a mine out. We're going to, oh, I'm, I'm getting shot over a matter of $80. Who the heck is Clara? And we're, you know, we're hysterical. Doc's out of his mind. And, I, you know, all the setup to it is, and we knew one thing for sure. If he had just left him the time machine and here's the schematics for how to get Marty back to 1985, that's a real short movie. So you got to have some reason for him to want to go back West. Cause at that point, like it, it, it's very clear. Doc is like, don't come back for me. And I love how, you know, the 1955 doc is like, I love how I'm going to get to spend my retirement in the old West. I'm down for it, Marty. Go, because I'll make sure everything happens the next 30 years so we can replay every, all that hell we went through in 1985 so right. that we can do it again because I've got to keep the loop going. And that's the other thing, too, is that we're asked to believe in this movie, Brian is that Doc Brown is like the ultimate Doctor Who Time Lord. Like, he has had to orchestrate so much stuff to keep all of this afloat. It's it's mind-boggling. And he will continue to apparently keep all that going because uh, apparently he's not done with the time machine, even though he wanted to destroy the damn thing. <laughs> yeah, he's been talking about it for two movies now. Oh, and he my goodness. He could get rid of it, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, a huge leap to make because... Now Doc in 1955 knows about Doc in 1985 and what he's invented, and he has to wait 30 years to invent it again? I, I don't know, man. It seems like a well, stretch. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's sort of the point where you become your own grandfather. Well, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's what drives him mad in the first place. It it could be. It, it's what makes him eccentric, you know. I mean, you, you, what you we, we don't realize in this, and this is kind of one of those fun things. You know, I said if you pull too many threads on time travel movies, it can really unravel. But one of the fun things kind of pick out sometimes is how long have the people been in the time loop? Like if you watch that Groundhog Day movie that Bill Murray and Harold Ramis made, I mean, I think Ramis had said once in an interview that like Murray's in that loop for a you know an astronomical number of years, you know that he's just reliving that day over and over again, and you got to think like. How long has Doc known and been in this loop for this yeah. long? Like, and, and I think what the would, movie asks us is that the first movie that we see is the first time it all happens, maybe. But so much of it happens in such a way that, like, maybe it wasn't. I'd like to think that um, Doc thinks it's the first time every time. Right. 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 Yeah, I don't think uh, he's or, aware. Or but the second somebody, time, I guess you could say, because once he yeah. gets the, once he learns about it in 1955, he knows it happens. So maybe yeah. he thinks it's just the second time replaying over and over again, because who's going to remember every single time they've gone through the loop? They, they won't. Right. right. Well, the, the other people won't for sure. But after the events of the first movie, just taking that for what it is, he is aware that at some point in 30 years, he befriends this kid. And they go on a, an adventure together and it's got to happen. He's got to be friends with him because it's the only way that things keep going. Then that he lives, you know, doesn't get shot by the Libyans. So right. like, who's yeah. to say he doesn't go to Marty and like, Hey, good to see you again, Marty. And what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the one thing we never get. And I'll give him credit for not over explaining like how these people became friends. Cause it is kind of a weird thing to think about, but you know, whatever, maybe he did a you know show and tell one day at that slacker high school Marty went to, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but one thing is for sure. Michael J. Fox is clearly five years older. 
And this Christopher Lloyd looks the same because they've right. just been dousing him in makeup the whole time. Uh, but Martin, but Michael J. Fox is an older guy. Like he is an adult now, <laughs> like a full on. He's not in high school anymore and it shows. And so we got it. We can't put him in that setting again. So throwing him back in the old West in this goofy get up because he looks like a, you know, some sort of ridiculous. I don't know what kind of outfit that is. I've never seen a pink cowboy outfit in my life, but no, it's, it's, mm-hmm. no, it's like he's standing on the side and you're know, selling used cars or something. He goes back to 1885, and we get all the fun stuff of Marty walking through what will become Hill Valley, right? You know, it's just basically two streets. They're building that dang courthouse and clock tower. I'm like, man, that thing lasted a long time. Well, you you know, know, if they keep it up, it should. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly they keep it preserved. It gets struck by lightning. They keep it going for 30 years to to remain the same. As a matter of fact, I think it was the same in 2015. So they kept that thing going forever, you know, <laughs> to try to save the clock tower. Because some guy hits him up for money for that uh, yep. when he's in 2015. We get all the Western motif tropes and gags and stuff here. And, I, again... Part of me is like, yeah, you know, that's fun. It's funny. He steps in manure. He's wearing his Nikes. He walks into a, you know, a bar and he doesn't know what to order. He doesn't know how to, you know, he's asked for ice water. The hubba bubba cowboy over there is laughing at him. You know, I mean, you got all, all this stuff. Somebody from Green Acres is in that scene too. And then in comes old good old Buford bad dog Tannen. And, uh, and I hate that name. Uh, I got to say, Thomas F. Wilson has had the most fun, I think, of anybody in this cast. Of playing all these varied versions of Biff. And yeah. this one, he clearly just leaned right into it and had a great time with it. Well, and he's the one character, uh, other than maybe Leah Thompson, who gets to play different versions of himself, right? Yeah. Like, all the, Marty's the same. Doc's the same. Jennifer's the same. Uh, they don't change in this movie. But Biff changes every single one. And I think that's the best part, is that uh, he gets to play different aspects of a character in each of these movies that make it more fun. Now he's not Biff in this one, obviously until the end, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the best part here for him is his character gets to play all these different scenarios for him, for himself, right? Where Marty has to play Marty mm-hmm. the whole time. Right. Yeah. And doc has to play doc the whole time. Biff gets to be rich Biff for one. Biff gets to be old West angry Biff for one. Biff gets to be old man Biff a couple times. He gets to be rich, you know, all sorts of stuff. So I, I think that's the cool part about it. And then Leah, Leah Thompson gets to play pretty much the same character. <laughs> yeah. All this whole movie, but in different eras. And <laughs> I think that's hilarious. I think like, it's funny, like how narrow the McFly gene pool is, <laughs> you know, like that his great grandmother looks exactly like his mother, who he wasn't related to before his father married. Eh, that can make your head hurt. Oh, just start yeah. thinking about that. And also all of the other people that just seem to exist in the loop that is Hill Valley, the Stricklands. You know, yeah. you got Strickland with that big handlebar mustache and, you know, his son on the horseback and discipline and all that. So, like, the Stricklands have always been the town sheriff and then they became high school principals. So I'm like, man, that's a step down. Sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> sheriff's kind of a big deal. That's like a big administrator job. You know, that's not, it's not just being a cop. So, anyway, it, I just, I just thought it was funny that we, we had all this and it made me start going down the rabbit hole. And, and even Biff, to that extent, I'm like, are all of these people in, like, a time warp? <laughs> like, is everybody here caught 
in a in a wormhole basically and they just have to relive this thing over and over they can't ever go anywhere else they're in that one little spot in california <laughs> well i mean it's like any small town right uh, a lot of people live there their whole life and their families grow up there and they True. they never leave i don't yeah. i know families like that and for where i grew up they there's generations of them and they never go outside of that town so i mean it's believable you know that yeah, they all stuck around. Yeah, there's a good country song called Five Generations of Rock County Wilsons, I would recommend. It's sort of about that kind of thing. But yeah, that, that's what this movie's really about, too. So we get all this. I mean, you know, Buford, of course, shows up, starts shooting at Marty's feet. It's that, you know, clearly they run into each other. And we're still playing up the, are you chicken? Are you yellow motif? Mm-hmm. Like we're still going to do that. That trope is going to exist again. And I'll be honest, man, at this point, I'm just like, well, clearly they've leaned into that. We're, we're just going to have to live with that. But they do find an interesting way, I think, to kind of clean it up. Now it is very Saturday morning special way to clean it up, but they use the great, great grandfather of Marty Seamus, who's Michael J. Fox doing a pretty horrendous Irish accent, <laughs> but, but you know, better than Tom Cruise is far and away, but still, but he's doing this whole bit. And it, that's him who teaches him. Like you got to learn how to control yourself. But on one hand, I'm like, I, I can like that. It's an, a relative. It's somebody who can kind of talk to him or relate to him. And it's very calm. It doesn't beat it over his head. Like, don't be an idiot. It, he relates to him in a human way, but it's almost too close like George Lucasy Star Wars that it's like my brother Martin couldn't control his temper and look what happened to him. I'm like, so Marty had a relative named Martin who also didn't like it when he got called chicken and it killed him. That's sad. Hey, go runs in the family, man. And he, someone's got to break the uh, cycle. I mean, you see that kind of stuff in families, right? Uh, you know, so they just usually don't have the same name. That's what well, I mean. but I think yeah. that's what got that. That's what got to him, and that's what make, convinced him that he needs to think about it because he had the same name. Oh, well, he has the same name, and I have his same temperament and everything else. So, hmm, okay, and that's what happened to him. Maybe that's going to happen to me. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's the the piece that he needed to hear to get him to realize he's being dumb. Interesting I don't know. to think about. But you know, the other thing, too, is that they, they do replay a lot of stuff mm-hmm. from the first movie. We talked about that in the second movie, that they wanted to kind of redo you know, the chase through the town square and Doc telling them how they're going to make the thing work and all that. And they redo all that here, though it's a lot more rudimentary and you know, it's supposed to be a little more rustic because we get the model scene again and Doc's got this <laughs> whole – Friggin' warehouse just full of gadgetry. It's Rube Goldberg, Wild Wild West, like I said. Gadgetry, I'm place. wondering how the hell he got all the stuff for. I'm, right, I'm like, 1885, this guy, small town Hill Valley. I don't know where you're going to yeah. get all your parts. They're not I mean, coming I get from FedEx. That the guy is smart enough to have invented a time machine, but he can make ice now in a town that doesn't have any. But it's not just yeah. that, though. I can see that, but where's he getting all the pieces, the parts? Right, the, right. It's a, you got a town with like 12 buildings in it. Yes. Right? And the nearest the town, the nearest town is who knows how far away, but Biff's going to go rob it. Um, do they have all the parts he needs and he just starts buying things up here and there to get it? Or is he manufacturing all of the metal himself because he's now a blacksmith? I don't know. 
Well, see, that, I mean, I get the I idea mean. that he's a metallurgist because they kind of had dropped that through the bit that he's he's got that background, which I, I have family members that are metallurgists. Like, that's a very specific science, but it also requires raw materials and elements mm-hmm. that unless Hill Valley's sitting on a cobalt mine that we don't know about <laughs> or something, like, I don't know. I don't know how he gets all of it either. He did. And here's the thing. Here's he did thing drop that there was a mine. Did he say what type of mine it was? It's Almost a coal mine. It, a I mean, coal it actually mine. says okay. coal mine on it. So I, my my only thought is that we're not supposed to ask these questions. I mean, well, clearly we're we are not. not, but we're <laughs> doing it here. And and the fact that we are, and I, and I'll tell you now, I've always had these questions about it, even thirteen, fourteen year old me, because this this movie insults my intelligence to the point that I'm like, look, I can go a little bit. But this is going too far. Like, I, I think it would have been interesting. What would be a much more interesting is he's back in 1885 and he can't do all of this shit. He can't do all this gadgetry stuff. They have to figure something else out. Cause the big problem becomes Marty gets an arrow in his car and he parks it in a cave, rips the arrow out and he's cut the fuel line. And while Mr. Fusion will power the reactor and the flux capacitor problem that will come up later with the train issue, gas runs the car. It's always run the car. Yeah. And, and, and part of me is like, wait a minute. You took this car to the future to have Mr. Fusion installed and hovercraft, and you didn't think to make it like Tesla electric or something? Like, what? Which wouldn't have helped no anyway gas? in the 1885. There was no, no, it, no it wouldn't Tesla have. electric to power them up. But No, or have some other like regenerative project. That, that to me is like, wow, we, we really were just stuck in 1984 like thinking with the way well, that they yeah, built the thing. People weren't thinking about that back then, right? I mean, my dad had a uh, electric car running on batteries, uh, but that wasn't until probably the early 90s. And he yeah. bought that as a gimmick for his print shop, and it had his logo on, and he would drive it around. You know, it only went like 40 miles, and it would run out of energy, but he would drive it to and from work every day uh, to kind of just promote his business. And that yeah. was, we'd never seen anything like that before. That was the first time I'd ever heard of an electric car. I mean, they were talking about alternative energy at that point. I, I'm just making the point that, like, if, if Doc can do all of these things – that, that might have been an upgrade you wanted to do yeah. down the line. But what, what I was getting at was the, the problem is, is now they've got to solve for, like, how do we get the thing up fast enough? He's got all this other crap going together. The fact that they go through all these wacky ways to try to get the car up to 88 miles an hour with horses and dragging it off a cliff and all this other crap before they come up with the steam engine idea and pushing it with a train. It, and to have... To have that problem like that, and then all the other stuff he's got in his lab there, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just mm. it, like you can't have it both ways, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it needed to be. It would have been much more fun if they had like, I can't do any of that anymore, Marty. I don't know what you want me to do. Like, we we'll have to figure out how to push it, but I I can't make a model of it. I don't have an ice maker. I don't have all this crap going on here. Agreed. Um, the, the whole building a uh, Hill Valley train thing uh, model uh, questions where he got, again, all the stuff. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, he never leaves. They're together almost 24-7 other than when he's with Clara or dreaming right. about Clara. So it's not like he takes a horse to the next town to buy parts. They just yeah. miraculously are in his little warehouse. Uh, uh, whatever. I don't know. Seems That's odd. True. Let's talk about Clara though, because now that's the, that's the big thing that they do here. We introduce a brand new character. It's always a tough thing to do in a, in a movie series that's tight like this is how do you introduce somebody new? Cause we hadn't done that 
to this point. Mm-hmm. We've just seen different versions of people like Biff, Lorraine, you know, George, whomever along the well, way. We kind of introduced Needles in two, right? Yeah. I mean, we threw him in there, but he was, he's, a, he's like a nobody. That's, you know, doing stunt casting with Flea, you know, and we're going to have him come back again. We'll, we'll get to Marty's car crash in a little bit because I do want to talk about that. But we, you know, we're introducing a major new person here. She's going to have huge influence on this. Clearly, she was the beloved Clara, which we still don't know how that happens. Right. And it, I think it's funny that Mary Steenburgen has talked about how she's played this character twice. This is the same character she's played in Time After Time. This woman who falls in love with a time traveler and eventually decides to go with him. And she's played it again. They hired her because of that. And they basically told her, we want you to do that, but cuter. You know, and she was like, <laughs> okay. And I like her as an actress. I've always thought she gives fun performances. I mean, I've watched her for decades. She's done a lot of good work. I I got to say, I kind of like her and, and Christopher Lloyd. I thought they had good chemistry. I thought it was fun. I just don't know that it belongs in this movie. Like, that. that's my only thing. It's, it's fun to give Doc that side story, but it almost feels Hallmark Cardi. I think that the point of it is to give Doc something to do after they get back to 1985, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's... If he were to just come back to 1985, destroy the time machine, and uh, you know, what was he going to do with his life afterwards? Now it gives him purpose. He's got a, a family, uh, that kind of stuff. I think that was the whole point of Clara and to be a distraction to him while they're trying to solve the puzzle, right? Yeah. He, because she was a distraction to him multiple times in this movie and to kind of explain, you know, the other stuff going on, the duel and, and everything else. So I don't know. I liked it. I thought she was a, a good character ad, but again, makes no sense that uh, they would have met beforehand because she would have fallen off the damn cliff into the ravine. But whatever, neither here nor there. That's how it is. Yeah, we we always do this like you rewrite the small history. You know, the twin pine mall becomes the lone pine mall. Late <laughs> Ravine is going to become Eastwood Ravine. I do love that, and I don't know if they paid him for it, if it was an inside joke, if he's friends with these people. I couldn't find anything about it. All the Clint Eastwood running, like they, you know, they did Calvin Klein the first time, and now it's Clint Eastwood. That's who Marty's alias is in 1885. I'm Clint Eastwood. And he lays that name out there, and I love how everybody in the bar is like, what a stupid name. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and then one guy, the guy says, if you don't go out there and fight, everybody don't know Clint Eastwood was the yellowest belly in the West. Yes. Like, you know, and we all think of Clint Eastwood, of course, as this badass, you know, lone gunman from his, you know, years of doing that stuff. And it's a rightfully earned reputation from the characters he's played. And I did think that was funny. Like, I legitimately think that's funny. I, as a kid, I ate that up because I was a big Eastwood Western fan. So totally spoke to that. I thought that was as good as the Calvin Klein jokes from the first one. I, I know it's just a repeat, but it's still pretty good. No, I think it was it was brilliant, and I always thought for me it was always like, wow. So now Clint Eastwood is named after Marty McFly in 1885, <laughs> right? Right? I'm like, now that now people might not remember, <laughs> um, might not remember Calvin Klein from the 50s to the 80s, or maybe it's just a coincidence. There's no way you can tell me the history books in Hill Valley are that bad. There's no way. <laughs> no, I mean, we they named the ravine Eastwood Levine, Ravine. So right? someone had to know who Clint Eastwood was. I, I just find that, again, you're creating your... <coughs> excuse me. 
you're creating your own time paradox problems when you yeah. do that kind of stuff. And sure. while it's a good joke, it it doesn't quite play right. You know what I mean? Like there's just something about it that I don't know, dude. I I, I feel I feel on one hand like it's funny in the moment, but if I start thinking about it, I'm like Man, Hill Valley's got to be the most confused town in the world. <laughs> See, I I thought you know the 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 Calvin Klein thing was because he was wearing the underwear and she sees it, right? It is. Yes. Couldn't he have come up with something different, like maybe calling himself Clint Wayne or John Eastwood or something, so that it kind of you know combines two Western idols into one instead of going directly for Clint Eastwood. I, don't I know. guess. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I really, I, I don't know. It's it, again, it's a joke, and they obviously don't play in it, play in that sandbox longer than they need to, other than to, to get the joke. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, again, I know we're picking out of the lot, but yeah, you know, that's what we do here. That's this movie's supposed to be. About. I do think that it is neat though that they think about the whole train aspect and the idea of like, you know, what if we got a steam engine locomotive, they get the guy telling like, if you unhook all the cars, get it going fast enough, yeah, you probably get it up that fast. But why in the world would you want to? Yeah, you know? right. And and uh, they're like, hmm, that might work. I'm like, okay, that's actually smart, and it's kind of neat because the DeLorean has clearly seen better days at this point. The tires are worthless. Take them off of it. <laughs> throw off. it on the train. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to put gotta, train train uh, track tires or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, you're basically there. running the rims and hope they fit the. <laughs> and the if track, they don't, yeah. I don't know how you can beat them into place. Maybe the blacksmithing can do oh, well, that. He's got to be able to. And train parts are easily gotten back then. So true, true. He, he could have easily modified parts. that car. That's true. That's true. So that part works. Like I actually think that's smart and kind of cool. Um, it is it is neat to see him doing all that. We got to talk about how Marty gets in the duel situation again, though, with with Buford, uh, because we know that Buford is going to shoot Doc because his horse threw a shoe. He shot the horse, so he wants Doc to you know pay back for it. Doc's like, if you brought the horse back, I would fix it. You're a moron, you know. And that, that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole you know thing. Which which Buford is a moron. That's the funny part. But Buford shows up at the town square dance. That night or whatever, benefiting the clock tower once again. We have some reason to do that. And he's going to shoot him at, while ZZ Top plays a bluegrass version of their song, by the way, which was a funny cameo. And Marty's so like ninja-like now, he can throw a pie plate. Because it was a Frisbee pie plate. It was a Frisbee pie so plate. He but he's so good play at, Frisbee. Yeah, but he throws it so well that he can stop a bullet with it in time. Well, he didn't stop the bullet. He hit his arm to... The gun yeah. went up instead of... Right at the target, so yeah, it's, it's just you know, it, there's all of that, and then he, you know, the the guy has the Colt forty five or whatever, and he hands him the pistol, and he does the whole wild gunman thing, and the you know, oh, I learned doing that at Seven Eleven or whatever, and I'm like, yeah. okay, so like, again, the leaps of logic this movie wants me to take, that's not the same thing, like aiming. Maybe, but you can't play a light gun game then pick up a pistol and shoot <laughs> like that, man. Like that's not how that works. Marty can. <laughs> 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 he showed it in number two too with that one game. No, um, yeah. I just love the build up because you you get uh, Buford Tannen coming into the the uh, the uh, bar and uh, thinking that Marty was Seamus, right? Calling right. him to. I told you never. Oh, you're not Seamus. You look a lot like him. And then they start talking, and then he gets pissed at him, and he starts shooting at him, and then. <laughs> 
Marty starts doing the moonwalk. Right. And all of a sudden everyone stops and they're looking at him like, what the hell are you doing? Right. And, and, but then he jumps, does going to do the Michael Jackson little toe tap thingy that he does. And the board kicks up the spittoon all over Buford, which that is the first thing that pisses him off, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you said it at the dance. He blocks, uh, Buford's shot of Doc, and that pisses him off too. And, and then we get the whole thing set up for this duel. And of course, you've got, uh, Seamus in the bar at the time, which he's not supposed to be there, but he's there. And, uh, he's looking at him, trying to say, you know, you can't, you can't accept this duel. And everyone else is like, you need to accept this duel because, like you said, Clint Eastwood will be known as the yellowest guy ever type thing, right? Um, so he accepts the duel thinking, you know, okay, I'll be long gone by the time we do this at noon. And then, of course, Buford says, I duel before breakfast at seven. And Marty, Marty says, I duel after breakfast at eight. So they make a date for eight. And what time is eight? Eight is the time they're supposed to steal a train. <laughs> so they're, th- he's thinking, I'm going to be out of here. No big whoop, right? So yeah, that sets up the duel. And, um, I like how it goes down. Where he's like, I ain't coming out. And so Mad Dog's getting pissed off about it. And he says, I'm going to give you the account of 10. And you know, Marty just sits in there and he's like, nah, whatever. Gets to 10. And he said, did you hear me? I got to 10. You better get out. And he's like, nah, he's an asshole. I ain't going to go out <laughs> there, right? So then he says, well, then I'm going to go ahead and shoot your partner. Right? So he gets Doc Brown and... Well, that's that's after Doc is depressingly sat there and waxed philosophical over a shot of whiskey all night because yeah. <laughs> Clara has has spurned him. He's given you know. he's given the whole rundown of everything that's happened with the time machine to this bar all Full night people. without drinking a single shot of whiskey, right. and and they're all like, "This guy is freaking crazy, right?" <laughs> so and they good. listen to it, and then he takes the shot and it passes <laughs> out. So they get a. You know, wake him up or whatever, and he's that's how he runs outside. Buford gets him, like you say. And then we get the replay of, you know, remember we saw Biff watching the old Eastwood Western where he wears the boilerplate under his you know chest, so when he gets shot, it blocks it. Mm-hmm. And Marty repeats the same gag, which I, I love how, you know, Marty takes the gun off like, I'm, I thought we could settle this like men, and Buford's like, no. <laughs> shoots him. <laughs> shoots him, you know? Yeah. And he just does this little, like, heh. What y'all expect? I shot. The, I'm the bad guy. I shoot the kid, and then of course you know Marty gets up, punches him out, and once again, poor, poor old uh, Buford. Uh, like the tannins are just meant to wind up in piles of crap. You know, well, like not only that, life. they're meant to get their asses kicked by the McFlies, apparently too. <laughs> apparently, like it's like historically now. It's, no, three times in a row. Maybe um, that's why Biff hated George all those years. It's hey, like in their genes. It could you know? be. It could be the stories yeah. passed down. Like this is a McFly. We don't like the McFlies, and here's why right. we don't like the McFlies. Hey man, jerks. their feud started over dumber stuff. So. Absolutely. Come um, on. I do like the lead up to the duel, though, and all the little things that are going on, like. The the uh, the tailor's coming up and taking his measurements. He's like, I told you I don't want a suit. He goes, oh, this is for your coffin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, measuring him for the coffin. They're getting oh, the tombstone that's part of the photo. So good. So good. They, they, they've got to have all those things again because it's that ticking clock thing, like that photograph mm-hmm. he had in the first movie. The The cool thing about that first one, though, man, is it, it was organic. In this, it's like, oh, we need to have that again because the audience expects that. So now it's like... 
I've seen this before, you know. <laughs> okay, you and I are both wrestling fans, right? Like we got our favorite wrestlers, but at times, like the formula is like, and here's the part where you're gonna get in the rest hold. And here's the part where you're gonna start coming back. Like you can just kind of see it, yep. and it becomes almost a little stale at some point. Formulaic, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but you know, th- that's also part of the appeal to everything too. Like you mm. get. You know what's going to happen, and then the fun part is, is when it doesn't work, right? Right. In, in exactly. wrestling or anything else. So I don't know. I don't mind that, to be honest. I, I think you keep it going. That it worked the first time. It worked the second time. It's going to work the it, third time. It, it's part of repeating the same things over and over again mm-hmm. in these scripts. And Gail is just in love with his own script at this point. You can tell, and he should be that first one's genius, you know? So they're doing all this. The other element we, and we've got to talk about, you know, they do spend a significant amount of time with Clara and doc courting each other. And they're quoting Jules Verne to each other. And they're looking through telescopes. I, I found that to be kind of sweet. You don't see middle-aged adult romance in movies right. anymore at all, but you really, even 1990, that if you were seeing that, it was because like Richard Gere was sleeping with some woman that was may or may not kill him. You know, I mean, it was that that's what was going on at the time. So this was kind of a, a sweet throwback to something that hadn't been in cinemas in a long time and doesn't really happen now either. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, they give Doc something here, and I, I think that's was a nice part about it. And I think they did it really well. Like, he's all like, I ain't gonna fall in love for a say. That's just hokey BS, you know? I don't believe in that. And then Boom, like, right? Yeah. First time they set eyes at each other, it was like, holy crap. I thought it was cute. It was cheesy, but that's how Doc should be, right? He should be yeah. cheesy, and his relationship should be weird and, and well, I mean, he finds somebody who's just as nerdy as he is. That's the that's the thing. She's the spinster. You know, at that point, at that age, you're not married. And those times, you're single for life yeah. at that point. So, you know, she she's the, the old uh, school marm, right? You know, who's just as nerdy and weird as he is and is liable to believe the fantastical thing he's going to lay on her. And she doesn't. And what, what I think is gets her is these two guys get on the train behind her because she's going to leave town. She can't take it anymore, you know. But she, and she doesn't believe him because they both love Jules Verne. And that's yeah. right out of his book, right? Exactly. So she thinks he's just throwing a line at her based on the book that they both like and, and trying to right. mock her. But only to find out from the two guys sitting behind her on the train, they're like, oh, this guy was poor, ridiculous last night, talking about all this you know, crazy stuff. He's from the future and all this. And she realizes, holy cow, it's him. So she, you know, takes off going for Emmett that the gunfight's already happened. Buford's in the, in the cow maneuver. Uh, at this point, the, the guys are, you know, Doc and Marty have gone to get the train switch. They hijack the train. Claire's riding, you know, hell bent after him at this point. And I love how Doc comes up with like his colored fire logs. You know, he's got it all worked out, right? Okay. When the green one goes, then the yellow one, then the red one, the red one's it, Marty. You know, when that hits, we're, we're, you're going to see some serious shit on a train track. <laughs> and, and I mean, that, that's really all. That's are. pretty much it, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, but you know, we get everything in this though, because Claire's riding, she's trying to walk across the train to get the dock, we get the hoverboard back. We kind of replay all of it here in these last few scenes. I gotta say, the train sequences, I dug it. I thought it was fun, and and it was a good ticking clock to get us up to eighty eight miles an hour. Because the the problem is they're supposed to go across a, a bridge that ain't built yet. Correct. So yeah. you know, it, it, if you think fourth dimensionally, it'll be there in nineteen eighty six as long as you get to it before you know you run off of it at the end here. 
<laughs> I thought it was cool. I liked that. Uh, I thought the whole the whole scene was well done. I, although I think that if that thing kicked in and she was hanging on the back there, she'd been flying down <laughs> the train tracks. However, yeah. it was kind of a fun thing. Like she keeps getting her ass kicked on the train because <laughs> these things kick in at the wrong time and she gets flung here and there. It's like oh, Strong, poor Clara, petticoat ever. <laughs> oh no doubt, her, no doubt on that train. But Dog goes back and gets her, and he makes a decision. Like, he was going to bring her back with him, but when he scoops her up in his arms, you know, he's just so taken with her. They float off to the left. Well, he had no time, for one. He had absolutely no time to get into that car, especially with her uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, they float off, and yeah, that was kind of a weird part. But, um, yeah, I, I was like, okay, well... That's great. And so Doc stays behind, which he was totally against and now is good with. Great. Well, awesome. he, he wanted to forever. Marty kept talking him out of, we don't belong here. You got to come back with me yeah. and all this. And what Doc realizes, like, I really don't actually. And we'll talk about why he knows that in a minute. Cause you've got a great reason as to how he knows, like, this isn't the end. Yeah. Marty gets back though. It goes across the, the now Eastwood ravine. We'll learn about good. Good train crash, by the way. They did a good job set. The Dean Cundy, once again, great DP, legendary in Hollywood. Does a great job shooting that. Marty gets back and he barely gets out of that DeLorean before that, you know, newfangled, uh, uh, Union Pacific train just blasts the DeLorean <laughs> into a billion pieces. Right. I like that whole scene where he's back too and it's the cars just coming down real slow across the tracks and the arms are down and everyone's looking at him like, what the hell are you doing on the tracks in a DeLorean? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was pretty know. funny. But yeah, and we get to... Gone. Oh, it is. It's gone. All right. And then we get to see him go back and, uh, you know, see his family and learns that they're back to where they were after the first movie, uh, had occurred. And then he goes and picks up Jennifer, who's still sleeping on the, uh, uh on the pet. What is it? The, the little the swing. Yeah. The porch yeah, swing. Still the porch swing. But everything's morphed perfectly around her again. Poor Elizabeth Shue. Nothing to do with this movie. She had no clue. Look at the facts. Yeah. 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 They're driving around in the truck. We get the needle scene. And what we realize is that Marty McFly's life changed forever that week. <laughs> you know, the time traveling, he was going to have the wreck that ruined his rock career or whatever. Uh, you know, wh- whatever it was, he was going, it, it, all that was going to happen. But this time he does the smart thing. He throws the truck in reverse. Needles and company speed off. They barely miss hitting a Rolls Royce. You realize that like, oh, the reason Marty's life got ruined is actually kind of practical. It wasn't an injury. He hit a rich person who sued him into oblivion. Well, not only that, he heard it, it was a wrist injury, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that caused it so he couldn't play anymore. And that would have been from the car accident. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Yeah. But it's also that he, he got in, he got in. A trouble with somebody who was much bigger and powerful oh, yeah. than him. And that, that's the idea is that he's learned his lesson. The you're fired facts, which who the hell remembered that from part two? Whatever. It's Jennifer's artifact. You know, you did. I, I, <laughs> I didn't, but, uh, yeah, I, that disappears. And then they go back to look at the wreck of the DeLorean and it's kind of a sad moment because you're like, well, Doc's gone, you know, and it's over. Yeah, and that's basically what he says too. It's like uh, I'm gonna miss this. Guy. I'm gonna miss that old man. Uh, you know, it, weird as that may sound, I'm just gonna miss having him around and hanging out with him and whatever else. And then all of a sudden, what happens, Jay? Boom! 
here comes this medieval steam engine, like, rip-roaring in. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, like, how did he trick that bitch out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked you that mm-hmm. offline, because I said I've never understood how Doc had the stuff to pull that together. But then you told me something that I, in 30 years, Brian, I had never thought of, that he's got a time machine stuck in a cave mm-hmm. that he now knows about because he has to put it there so that Marty can have it. So he's right. still got that time machine, right? Right. So basically what I, what I said was um, he puts the time machine into this cave and leaves it there for Marty to get in 1955. So Marty goes and retrieves this time machine in 1955 and takes it back to 1885. So now in 1885, there's not one time machine. There's two of them sitting there. The yeah. one that Doc put in the cave and the one brought back from 1955. So the same time machine, but two of them. So when Marty leaves and the, and the time machine he's in gets destroyed, the original one that Doc left, fully functional, by the way, how he didn't remember that when he needed to get Marty back home, I don't know. <laughs> but fully functional time machine is sitting in that cave, all good from when he first got there. So he was able to salvage everything off of there. Well, it wasn't fully functional because he did talk about how like some of the time circuits had been fried. The parts wouldn't be available until, right. you know, 1955. So there, he had gas in it and he could get fusion to work, but he didn't have the stuff for it to be able to tell it where to go. You know, at that point, he hadn't figured that out. So, so from what you told me, I figured out the long problem I had of like, how do you create a time train? All right. You go get the flux capacitor out of the thing because you don't need gas to run that. Mm-hmm. You, you now know steam is a really good way to go. <laughs> you go jank another train because clearly he can do that. It's easy to do. And he figured out how to outfit it based off of that, probably off the crap off the hoverboard. He took the circuitry oh, off of go. it he to get all that circuits, working yeah. again. Mm-hmm. And he and Clara take the train. And the first thing he does is because we're going to 2015. We're going to hover convert this bad boy. And then we can go do whatever we want. And Doc is now a time traveling savant with his family. And, and that's I, all they do apparently now. Yeah, I mean, and it's all they do on the show too. I mean, it's it, like Clara and the boys are part of the the cartoon. It's like going forward, that's all they're all there. Einstein's there. They had to come back and get Einstein. That's mm-hmm. the that's the thing he says. And I'd never caught that before till this time. Was he said, "Well, I didn't want you to think anything was wrong with me, and I had to come back and get Einstein, you know, so that he could come and join the family." And here's the kids. Here's the wife. And you know, it's it's a sweet ending. It's very Spielberg saccharin, you know, if you will. But I can't lie to you and tell you I didn't feel like it was earned, too. Like, they had set up all that stuff that that could work. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good way to end things. Um, Doc gets to go off, like I said, with his family and do whatever he wants at this point. Because, let's be honest, he's old in 1985. So, the mm-hmm. fact that he may go missing, nobody's really going to care. <laughs> no, no, and so, and we we've already set up in the second one like he can get rejuvenated and go get a new liver or whatever. The question you know? becomes well, and he answers that question. I was going to say the question becomes: Is there train tracks for him uh, in the future? But obviously, at the end there, he busts out some wings, hovers up, yeah. and flies away in that train. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which then goes to the question of why keep it as a train? <laughs> I 
I guess it, it's a little more convenient, maybe a little more room, and maybe the DeLorean's out of style at this point. <laughs> you know? it's, it's like, yeah, let's just rip the parts out of the thing and do something fun and go. I like the flying train. It's fun. Yeah. You know, they go off into the end. And, and he, he leaves Marty and Jennifer with the lesson of, like, you don't need to know any more about your future. Just go live your life. Well, let's just <laughs> hope Doc doesn't meddle in Marty's future <laughs> anymore, right? Because that yeah. bad stuff happens when that goes down. Yeah, it, it's clearly they, they've uh, had to learn some lessons about that along the way. But have we learned our lessons, Brian? It's time for Final Thoughts, Recommendations, and Popcorn Ratings. What are yours for Back to the Future Part 3? I I really enjoyed watching this movie. And I know it's nothing is as good as the first one. The first one's in a class of its own. But I, that said, I, I think this is my second favorite of the series. Um, I like parts of two. Don't get me wrong. I do like some of the futuristic aspects of it, and I do like some of the back to the 55 aspects of it too. But there's parts in two that drag on and are just kind of like, mm, you know, but this one, I think it, it flows nicely. Um, I like the story. It's fun. Like you said, very cartoony, um, which I think is appealing. Uh, especially if you want to watch it as a family. I think that's a very good appeal to this one. There's nothing really racy or, or anything in this one at all. Like in the first one, you had mom hitting on son and things yeah. like that, and her boobs are all over the place, right? In the second one, kind of the similar type thing with her being like almost hooker <laughs> mom uh, with Biff as her husband. So in this one, nothing like that, right? It's it's all, yeah. you know, good family movie. And I really enjoyed that. So for me, I always get a kick out of this one. I think it's a, f- a fun one and the story's fun. So I'm giving it a large popcorn. I really like this one. Yeah, let me tell you how I feel about this movie. I'm going to use another analogy. One of my favorite bands of the 90s, Hootie and the Blowfish. That first record, Cracked Review, it's like that first movie. It Don't took them there. years to write it, years to perfect it, and buddy, it works on every level. It's a perfect rock album. First track to the back track. Ain't a bad song on it. Don't go Like there. that first movie. <laughs> it's, it's there. And then there's that second album, Fairweather Johnson, where you got to come back four years later, you got to replay the hits, and you don't know what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> and they talked about it. You're hurting that, me. That they just didn't get it working right. And, and there's parts of that second movie that work. Much like there's parts of Fairweather Johnson that work, mm. but there's parts of it that very much don't. And then there's the third one, you know, Musical Chairs for Hooting the Blowfish, which is a brilliant, kind of underrated record for them, for me. Great tunes on that album. They get the formula right. They figure out what they want to do. And they even have some banjo picking and Western motif in it. That's Back to the Future 3. It's it's a much more fun and lighter story than the second one, and even though it can insult your intelligence a little bit if you if you let it, it's it's still a fun watch. It is by far a superior watch to the second one. Mm. And I never thought I could say this. Like, can you watch the third one without watching the second one? And the answer is an emphatic yes, because yeah. they tell you everything you need to know in the beginning of it to get you past it. It's almost like they knew you don't need to watch the second one to get to this one. And it is Saturday morning cartoony and and after school special, and it's kind of hallmarky with the love story. But honestly, it's sweet and it's fun, and it ends on a big sweet fun note. It's like a bunch of sugar in your popcorn for sure. <laughs> so it's the Spielberg you know formula. It's caramelized, but it ain't bad if it's done right, and it's it's a lot better than the second one. So I give it a large popcorn too. It's a lot of fun for me in this series, man. 
I I don't watch the second and the third movies. I own the first one. I watch it a lot. Usually once every year, once every couple of years like you. Mm-hmm. I will watch that movie because it's perfect. It's a perfect 80s movie. It really is. And it doesn't feel dated, even being from the time that it's from. The second and the third one, I, I could leave the second one behind forever. I mean, I gave it a media popcorn because the last third of it's decent. This one is fun, and if it's on television or something, I'm like, hey, you know, I'd leave that on in the background. I may watch the train sequences or whatever, watch the Buford stuff, and then I'm done with it. It's not as good as the first one, but it's still fun, and and I had a good time watching it. So I, I'll, I'll agree with you that, yeah, this is definitely the second best one in the series, and it is a fun one to revisit, and it's very much more family-friendly, a little broader appeal. So left them a lot of places to jump off from, that's for sure. So yeah, large popcorn for me on that one too, Brian. And that's a big series for us, man. Back to the Future, been talking about that one since the beginning, and now we we can check that one off the list here. Yeah, I mean, we even tried to record it once, and uh, it just (laughs) didn't go well. (laughs) But um, yeah, I'm happy to have this one in the books, because like I said, this is a favorite in my household. This is a favorite with my wife and I, and I know you really, really love that first one, so it was always on the list, and just for some reason just never got around to it. So I'm super happy we finally did, and I'm glad we were able to finish all three, because uh, you can't just do the one and and be done. You have to tell all three, because it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to do just the one. Yeah, they they are tied together. But I I will contend if you just watch that first movie and you never see the sequels, or if you watch that first movie and you tell people, well, that's it. If somehow you can get a version of it that doesn't have to be continued on the end of it, (laughs) I think you've got a satisfying thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do. And there's some fun stuff. Again, the extended universe of this movie will live on. For as long as Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and to some extent Bob Gale are alive, they're not going to remake this movie. They they are going to keep it in alive in other ways to keep that from happening. And once they're gone, who knows? Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I mean, we talked about that at the end of the first one. Like, where would you even go with it? How could you do it? Probably couldn't. I, I think have it's to cool tell to have a whole different story. Yeah, it, it would be it would be so different that I, it probably wouldn't have any of the same appeal. And moreover. I, I don't know who you get to do all of it. And, and I kind of don't want them to. I mean, there's some, you know, nothing's a sacred cow in a movie land, but I kind of am glad that some things you just can't redo. You know, you can try and, but you just can't. And yeah. so, I mean, yeah, I'll put it right up there again. It's, it's from 1985 and it's a perfect 1985 movie, just like Crack Reviews, a perfect 1994 record, you know, from Hooting the Bluffish. So there's, there's my, your grand review of uh, Back to the Future. But I'm glad I got to do this from the YouTube, man. This is a big series. It's a lot of fun to check this one off the list after all these years, man. Coming up on almost 11 years of film strip now. Mm-hmm. And uh, glad we were able to knock this one out. Folks, thanks so much for listening to the show. You can find all of our episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. That'll take you to our anchor distribution site. We're proud partners with anchor. FM. Follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's where you can find posts about the shows that are out now, what's coming up next. You can find a link to our link tree, which will tell you all the different places you can find our stuff on Letterboxd, you know, everywhere else that we are nowadays. We appreciate your support. For Brian, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. 
All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.